Ladies and gentlemen, this is The Forward Curve. Hello and welcome once again to The Forward Curve, the weekly podcast covering the commodity markets and the global economy, brought to you by Gold Street Advisors, the independent research and advisory firm. In this episode, we'll explore the revolutionary realm of cryptocurrencies, specifically central bank digital currencies, and how they are already changing the way people around the world pay for things. I'm Christian Klavodecher, and joining me again this week will be our chief analyst, Robin Barr. If you haven't already, we encourage you to subscribe to The Forward Curve, and be sure to check out our website, www.goldstreetadvisors.com, for information on what Gold Street Advisors can do for you and your company. So, Robin, this is a hot one that a lot of people want to know about but don't understand. Why don't you go ahead and kick things off? Following on from last week's podcast, you know, we looked at technology and commodities trading, whether that was changing or not. So do listen again if you didn't get to hear it. This week, uh, let's look at something maybe a bit closer to home. Money doesn't get more close to, to home than the money. As is often the case uh, in a lot of areas, China is leading the move to a digital currency. Uh, But other countries are hot on their heels. The central bank digital currency, the CBDC for short, bit of a mouthful, I know, that train has left the station and is gathering pace. Anyone who fails to board will be left well and truly behind in one of the potentially most significant geopolitical and macroeconomic advances of our age. That's a term I've never heard before, central bank digital currency. Uh, That sounds like something more than regular people buying into Bitcoin. Before you explain exactly what that is, Robin, can you give us a brief primer on what exactly cryptocurrencies are and how they work? A cryptocurrency, let's call it uh, crypto. This is basically a digital asset so nothing that you can hold. It's not a, a piece of paper that the government prints uh, an IOU. So it's a digital asset designed to work as a medium of exchange so that an individual coin ownership records, these are stored in a ledger in a form of computerized database. Um, so blockchain would be that sort of um, technology that will getting to grips with and it uses strong crypto to cryptography <laughs> which makes which very difficult to pronounce but makes it nearly impossible to counterfeit or double spend so that's why it's uh, seen as uh, as good and it secures a transaction record it also controls the creation of additional coins allows people to verify the transfer of coin ownership so basically uh, in a nutshell a digital form of currency or medium of exchange understood and you know as we're seeing uh, other spheres of activity COVID-19 has accelerated this trend in this case towards the replacement of cash that was already I think, in place. Fears that cash might literally be dirty and infected, you know, has helped, I think, drive digitization of money to uh, maybe undreamt uh, levels. Uh, So credit cards, debit cards, other forms of digital payment, which we're all familiar with in our sort of day-to-day business. They've gained a firm foothold, maybe at much lower levels of transaction value, 
than were previously accepted as a minimum for non-cash. Okay, you've caught me on the back foot again. So I'm not sure what you mean by much lower levels of transaction value than were previously accepted as a minimum for non-cash. What do you mean by that? What we're trying to say is that you can have transaction levels, you know, maybe close to zero. So cents and pence and and whatever. Whereas before, when you were not using cash, you needed a fairly high level of collateral. I suspect, you know, for the authorities and others to check, confirm, uh, and basically just identify that what you were using as collateral is, is as good as it says. Again, you know, stemming back to last week's podcast, you know, we talked about fraud, warehouse receipts. You know, these are forms of securitization that need to be checked, double-checked, and, and, and triple-checked. And in this way, because it's digital, you don't need so much checking. At least that's the theory. And I think in practice, that means you can have transaction values because it's digitized, that can be um, of very low value because it's not an expensive uh, thing to create. The history of crypto to date has been rooted purely in private sector initiatives. The origins of the most prominent and best known, Bitcoin, that remains shrouded in uncertainty, if not downright mystery. We still do not know the true identity of its supposed creator, Satoshi Nakamoto, this Japanese uh, gentleman, despite the varying claims that have been made in recent years, one cannot help but be reminded of the famous scenes in a certain pseudo-historical moving picture in which a number of men stand up in turn and claim to be the rebel leader Spartacus, or even Monty Python's Life of Brian. (laughs) Facebook's proposal for its Libra stablecoin has come as a shock to central bankers, you know, maybe as prodded them into action, who immediately saw a threat to their currency sovereignty. The prospect of Mark Zuckerberg displacing central banks and staking a leading claim in the digital currency universe with Libra, uh, or a future successor to Libra, is almost literally unthinkable. Even the stable coin mooted by the globally respected JP Morgan could prove too hard for central banks to swallow. The harsh reality is, however, that Facebook has a well-established and apparently highly loyal international user community that is almost 10 times, 10 times the size of the population of the United States of America. That alone gives some cause for concern. Hmm. So you're saying that central banks around the globe are worried about Facebook issuing its own cryptocurrency because of its huge global user base. Uh, Enough people around the world might start buying and selling things online using this Libra stablecoin that it might throw exchange rates for the world's various major currencies out of a whack? Maybe. uh, The creation, development, implementation of central bank digital currencies, CBDCs in case you had forgotten, is beginning to look inevitable. A growing number of major central banks around the world have now launched investigations, experimentation, and it's surely only a matter of time before they achieve greater recognition, respectability, and essential for any successful form of currency, wide acceptance. So the world is rapidly moving towards a fully cashless society. We see central banks 
digital currencies as the next logical step in the digitization of money. And China is currently leading the way. The growing number of investigations and experiments launched by the likes of the Fed, the European Central Bank, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, the Swiss National Bank, and the People's Bank of China is proof, if proof is needed, that this is already happening. So a CBDC is a highly secure digital instrument, which is created, backed by a central bank. It represents a claim directly against a central bank. So in a way, similar to a banknote, which is basically an IOU issued by the central bank, which would use a database run by the central bank or government. This database would keep track of the amount of money held by every entity, corporate even, or an individual. And so far, about 80% or 66 central banks uh, around the world currently working on these CBDCs. So this would allow central banks really to, to retain control of the amount of currency in circulation and ensure the stability of the financial and payment system as a whole. Furthermore, it would help governments prevent illegal activities, money laundering, for example, tax avoidance as well, as central banks can keep track of the exact location of every unit of the currency. I can't help but wonder how folks who are economic libertarians and wary of government in general would feel about all this, although, of course, governments always have been deeply involved in how their banking system works. What are the advantages of having central bank digital currencies then? The advantages, let's compare it to the current system, efficiency, speed, security, and reliability. They perhaps help to further assist financial inclusion by allowing any citizen to be provided a free or low-cost basic bank account to the central bank. It could also dramatically improve cross-border payments efficiency. So I think a lot of uh, advantages. And while it probably takes some time for Western countries to introduce these digital currencies, live trials are already taking place across four cities in China. In April 2020, the digital currency electronic payment began its test in Shenzhen, uh, Suzhou, Xiongjiang, and Chengdu. Uh, the People's Bank of China has said that the digital currency could be available in time for the 2022 Winter Olympics, and these are scheduled to be hosted in Beijing. So a digital yuan, this will be issued and backed by China's government while stored in a digital wallet app instead of a bank account. And by using their digital wallet, consumers and others will be able to execute daily transactions, such as paying for goods, sending and receiving money from others, and making transfers via ATM. So exactly the same as what we're doing today with uh, notes or with uh, debit cards. Just means that the digital yuan will be a part of the most liquid form of money supply, also known as M0 or M0, replacing some portion of coins and notes in circulation in the economy. Right. Okay. So you just mentioned M0 or M0, which is a technical economic term most people are not familiar with. What specifically does M0 refer to in our current, mostly physical currency environment? M0 refers to the most liquid form of money, that is cash. So it includes central bank notes uh, and coins, 
Uh, and it's not relevant whether the currency is held inside or outside of the private banking system as reserves. Governments and authorities, they want to measure M0 because if it's growing, then there is demand for, for cash, for currency. Uh, and that often, if supply is insufficient, that often can be inflationary. And we're reading a lot in newspapers and hearing a lot about the fear that you know inflation is going to uh, emerge because of QE and because of the stimulus that governments are injecting into the uh, into the economies and into the market. So, yeah, I think it's useful to measure M naught and see how fast it's rising or not. Hopefully, that's uh, helpful. So, as we've seen, you know, different countries, you know, are migrating. China, obviously, being the first towards digital payments. There is a deep-seated social component, I suppose, to cash payments, you know, because we use them in our daily lives. This can lead to a very gradual transition period to digital payments. But the young, I think, are very used to change. It's the older people, perhaps, where they need time to get used to switching over, particularly when the technology infrastructure you know, is already here. And I think those countries with no legacy infrastructure, you know, much of uh, China, much of Africa, if you think about it, they have very young populations, you know, a very technology savvy population as well. You know, mobile payments have grown very rapidly in China over the last decade. I was in China probably about a year ago, and you can do everything over a mobile phone, basically pay for everything. You don't need cash. It's truly amazing. So it's happening already in China. And, and China has some of the highest digital payment penetration rates worldwide. So with China already the leader in mobile payments, we expect them to also take the lead on setting the standards for these CBDCs, the central bank digital currencies. Right. That is absolutely fascinating. So, so does a move into a digital currency world mean the end of retail banking as we know it. You know, if everyone in the U.S. has an account with the Federal Reserve, are the likes of Morgan Stanley and Wells Fargo reduced to being just lenders? You know, particularly in the low to no interest rate environment we've been in for so long, you know, why have a checking or a savings account at a retail bank? That's a great question. I suppose, why not? I mean, you know, we're told we're living in unprecedented times that, you know, we're not going back to the pre-COVID normal. We're all going to be living in this new normal. And if this new normal means no banks, no retail banks of the likes that, you know, we go up to, we can pay check-in to, we can use an ATM, whatever, then yes, it probably does. In 10 years' time, we don't have any need for bricks and mortar banking, no, no retail banks. So I think it does. It, you know, I, I think we probably still need the merchant or investment banks because they're involved in, in different things. But yeah, a retail bank, is there going to be a need for it? Just as much as, you know, are we going to be dealing in, in banknotes and cash in 10 years' time? If you believe the answer is no, we're not going to be dealing in cash, then yeah, no need for retail banking. Wow. A brave new world indeed. Thanks very much, Robin. I hope we've been able to shed some light on things for our listeners. And so the time has come for us to close out this edition of The Forward Curve. I'd like to thank Robin for joining me today. And of course, I want to thank you for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe to The Forward Curve on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit our website, 
www.goldstreetadvisors.com for more information about Gold Street Advisors and the services we provide. Join us again next week for more discussions of basic economics, as well as perspectives on the world's commodity markets, a little understood but key component of the global economy. I'm Christian Clavidecher, and on behalf of the Gold Street Advisors team, I thank you for listening. And remember to always keep an eye and ear on the forward curve.